and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, this week at Horse and Hound, we're all about getting ready for our awards. They run in partnership with NAF and take place at Cheltenham Racecourse next week. So it's all hands to the pump getting all those final details tied down ahead of the event. Our interviewee on the podcast this week is event rider Tom Jackson. He talks to me about his recent top 10 finish at Poe with the special mare, Billy Cuckoo. She's a horse that can produce a very nice test, but she can also get a little bit hot at times as well. She's kind of a little feisty mare. And I was really pleased with her test. She didn't really put a foot wrong. So for her, that was as good as we could have hoped for. After we hear from Tom, I'll be handing over to my colleague Alex Robinson to review all the week's news in sport with the team. Finally, trainer Jason Webb will join us to give his advice on lunging young horses. Now there's two basic things to lunging. If you complicate things too much at this early stage, it can cause a lot of blockages or resistances in your horse. More from Jason later. For now, pull on your gloves and let's get going. Our guest today is one of the rising stars of British eventing, Tom Jackson. Tom is a three-time team medalist at junior young rider level. He stepped up to five-star level when he was in his mid-twenties and has had some great results over the past couple of seasons, including a win at four-star long this season and in the British seven-year-old championships last year. Hello, Tom. Welcome to the Horse and Ham podcast. Hi, thanks very much for having me. It's great to have you on. And you were recently seventh in the five star at Poe with Richard and Sarah Dewson's mare, Billy Cuckoo. That's a career best result at the top level for you. And I know that she's a mare who you started riding at sort of at the back end of 2017 and she'd been produced by Pippa Funnel. Can you tell us how did you come to take that ride? Uh, well, just by the generosity of Pippa, really. Um, I was already training with Pippa and at that time uh, Pippa had had uh, a nasty fall um, and was coming back and didn't want to ride quite as many horses or, or wasn't quite you know physically ready to ride quite as many horses at, at each event um, so she asked if I would do a couple of events on Billy Cuckoo uh, which I did and got on with with her quite well so um, sort of the rest is history I guess just went from there. Yeah, and tell us a little bit more about her. What is she like as a sort of personality and as a character? Uh, Cuckoo is uh, a really interesting little character in that she's uh, not a very big horse. And uh, if I'm completely honest, she's not much to look at either. You wouldn't think she's a, a five-star horse if you looked at her over the stable door. But she has got a big heart and she is uh, incredibly careful. She's probably the most, if not... You know, the best jumper I've ever sat on, really, in terms of the, the show jumping on the last day. Oh, that's always so nice when you have a horse that will really pull through for you on that final day at a three-day. And in the spring, after you started riding her, so 2018, you had a big win at Belton in what was then the, the CIC three-star, CCI four-star short, as it's known now. That must have been a huge result for you because it is one of the really crack spring pre-Badminton events. What was it like? Yeah, it was a bit, uh, it was, to be honest, it was a little bit unexpected. I think that, were, I think I'm right in saying that was the first four star we'd done together. And uh, yeah, just sort of all came together on the right day. And uh, she ended up winning. She sort of, uh, I don't think she was 
in that much of a contention after the dressage. I think she did a, a sort of 30 or 31 or something like that from memory. And then, uh, then just kept, kept coming up the leaderboard throughout the day and sort of surprised us all. Yeah, great, great win that one. And leaping ahead to this season um, and, and your recent really strong results at Poe, tell us a little bit about the build-up to that event and how the whole of this year has gone for you. Did you go into that event with high hopes? What's it been like sort of leading up to Poe through this year? To be completely honest, we almost didn't go to Poe with Cuckoo. She's been a really good, consistent horse for us and has got some really good form at, um, at Four Star Long. She's got a couple of top 10 placings at uh, Tats and uh, Burnham Market last year. And then this year, she just had a couple of glance-offs uh, sort of in the middle of the, the year. And we weren't as confident perhaps as we would have been, you know, uh, at the beginning of this year about her stepping up to five star because uh, cross country has sort of always been her weakest phase, as it were. But we we sort of went back to the drawing board and had a few few discussions about what we should or shouldn't do. And in the end, <laughs> with, uh, I convinced the owners that uh, it was a good idea and uh, we should just give it a go. And uh, luckily, it was the right decision, I think. Yeah, definitely. And you had really great performances in all all the phases. Tell us about the week of the event. So your dressage, you kicked off with a 30.9 score in the dressage. Good good way to get started. Definitely, yeah. She's, um, she's a horse that can produce a very nice test, but she can also uh, get a little bit hot at times as well. She's kind of a little feisty mare. And she, I was really pleased with her test. She did, you know, some of her best work and stayed really relaxed and with me. Uh, we just had one little mistake in the halt and rain back. Uh, but apart from that, she didn't really put a foot wrong. So for her, that was, um, you know, as good as good as we could have hoped for. Mm, and on to the cross country. And, and you were saying that your build up hasn't maybe been the smoothest in that phase. What did you think of the track and, and how did it end up riding for you? Yeah, when I walked the track, I thought there was uh, definitely plenty to do. And uh, it's, it's always very similar at Poe in that you go there expecting the distances to be on the long side and it to be very skinny, but perhaps not the biggest looking course, you know, dimensionally. And it was a sort of true, true Poe course in, in that fashion, in that all the distances were on the, the long side. Um, and again, that doesn't necessarily play to Cuckoo's strengths. Um, in, like I said, she's quite a, a short striding small horse, but um, we came out of the start box on Saturday and she just felt really with me and really uh, sort of on it and focused. And uh, we just built from that and, and she was just felt really good all the way around. Actually had one of my best rides I've, I've ever had on her. Brilliant. And then came out and jumped to a great clear show jumping, which you've already said is perhaps her strongest phase. Yeah, no, she, um, to be honest, you wouldn't really want to be sitting on any other horse uh, on the final day, especially at somewhere where, at Poe, where they're renowned for, for building a, a, a big track on, on Sunday. Um, I'm pretty sure that in previous times and this time when I've been to Poe, they're probably the biggest eventing show jumping tracks I've ever, ever jumped around. They, they do look like proper jumping tracks. So, no, I felt, you know, as confident as you can going into the show jumping and uh, she jumped a, a terrific round. I mean, she, she just made it feel easy.
Yeah, brilliant. And have you made plans for her for next year yet? Do you know what you might aim for in the spring or, or what's happening? Uh, we haven't made too many plans just yet. Um, we sort of briefly had a conversations with, with her owners, Sarah and Richard, um, a couple of weeks ago in that we might head, head to Lemoulin with her in June. But uh, at the moment she's on holiday in the field and uh, we'll sort of just see how she comes back and, and then make a plan from her for there, really. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, very well done with that result. Tom, while we have you, we want to chat a little more about your career in general. And I thought we should probably rewind and talk about Walton Fiddler's find. He's the horse who I think you would agree sort of really first pushed you, pushed you into prominence. You rode him on the teams to win your under 21 medals and he took you to your first five stars, your first badmintons. Tell us a bit about him. How did you first sort of come to ride him and start that journey? Well, Wes, uh, or Wesley as we call him at home, was my first horse coming off of uh, ponies. Um, and we actually, we were a bit cheeky as a, as a family. We went just to the local dealers down the road from us, uh, just almost because my parents wanted to see how I get on with riding a few horses. And uh, we turned up and, and he was there as, um, you know, sort of a big gangly, four-year-old that was probably completely unsuitable for whatever I was 15 or 16 year old lad at the time and uh, yeah <laughs> and we ended up getting him. Gosh so amazing to your first horse to take you through that journey. Tell us about some of those highlights and um, tell us about your, your your medals and that success with him. Yeah I mean he's I mean he's been an, uh, an amazing horse for me in that like I said we got him uh, when I was doing pony club and I think I'd maybe done one season of B90 or 100 with my pony um, so I started with him at pony club level um, and then sort of just every time we stepped up we stepped up together and it was was a really amazing journey to go through the the sort of junior and then young rider program with him um, and really teach me you know, I was very lucky in that he was very talented and, and obviously a very honest horse for, you know, a young kid bobbling around on top of him, still still performing. Um, and we went through the sort of highs and lows of eventing together. Um, and it was amazing that, you know, we got all the way to five star and I'm really, really glad that we got him to be able to do that and do, I think he did three five stars in the end uh, and he's now happily retired here. Yeah, such a, a great journey for the uh, for the record. There was a uh, young rider team bronze, young rider team silver and junior team gold that you won with him. And of course, winners of the Bramham under 25 class on the way up the levels as well. And then two badmintons, two pose. Tell us about your first badminton, Tom, because that's always such a big milestone in a rider's career. How did it feel to go there and do that? It's always amazing going to badminton whenever, you know, I've been lucky enough to have been uh, a few times now and uh, whenever you turn up on the on the Tuesday it's it's always amazing walking through the archway into the stable you know it just has such a different feel to any other event you've ever done and uh, for him to be there and after you know he'd just come back from an injury as well so uh, for us to get him there and do that was a real big achievement in itself and then, you know, we were just really hopeful and looking forward to the week. I mean, in the end, I made a huge mistake on the cross country after getting 
three quarters of the way around the course and him feeling amazing um, and messed up a little bit but he still you know we managed to complete and and sort of tick that box as it were yeah definitely well it's always a good one to get under your belt and I want to ask you about a couple of your smart young horses as well you have H.H. Moonwalk who was last year's seven-year-old winner at um, at Osberton at Thorsby as it was because it ran at a different venue to normal tell us a bit about him he's uh, he's also stepped up to four star this year how's he going yeah, I mean, he's an incredibly talented horse and a really, um, really super horse that we're looking forward to to having in the future. Um, I think he he's incredibly talented and could, you know, hopefully go all the way and be be very competitive at the top level of the sport. Um, so he's he's not done an awful lot wrong this far. Um, so hopefully he can continue on that path. Yeah, definitely one to watch. And uh, pick out one other future star from your yard for us, Tom, a horse that people should keep an eye on. Um, probably we've got another horse here called Ars Fermentia that's at the same sort of level, same sort of experience uh, as the HH Moonwalk horse. Um, and again, uh, who went to, to Blenheim and did the eight and nine-year-olds. And I think he he's a real, real star for the future as well. Mm, he was 15th in that very competitive eight and nine-year-old class. So definitely one to keep an eye on. Um, and finally, Tom, just tell us a little more about yourself. Where are you based? Uh, we're based near Guildford in Surrey. And uh, and you sort of set up on your own quite soon after sort of leaving education and run your own yard. Is that how it works? Yeah. So I, when I left school, I went to work for uh, Sasha Pemble, now uh, Horrigan, uh, for just over two years um, and gained loads of experience there with the sort of young horses and then went and rode for Dasset Eventing and was a sort of rider for uh, for a year in producing and, and selling the horses that they have there and then made the decision after that to, to set up on my own and uh, then yeah now we're sort of where we are. Yeah and how many horses do you have in your yard? Um, so we look to have between 15 and 20 to event each year, which is kind of a, a nice number that uh, you can still do really, really properly. But uh, yeah, it keeps us busy enough. <laughs> no, definitely. 15 or 20 horses is very much a full time job. Well, Tom, we'll let you get on. But thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to, to recap on Poe and uh, talk a little about, about old times with Wes as well. Yeah, not at all. Thanks very much for having me on. Hello, I'm Horse and Hounds Alex Robinson. We'll be checking in with our news team in a little while, but first we're going to be catching up with our show jumping editor, Jennifer Donald, to discuss the Global Champions Prague playoffs, which took place over the weekend. Hi, Jen, how are you doing? Hi, Alex. Can you give us a quick summary of the action over the weekend? Who were the top players in the Longines Global Champions Tour Super Grand Prix? Well, yeah, the star of the show was uh, Swedish rider Henrik von Ekman with his lovely gelding King Edward. Um, I think everyone has fallen in love with King Edward over the past year. He's, mm -hmm. a, he's a real character. Um, he jumps barefoot, which is quite unusual at the top sport of show jumping. Um, and he just jumps clear round after clear round. And he's just brilliant to watch. Um, and uh, it's a great class. It's open to the top 15 riders from the, throughout the season. All the Grand Prix winners qualify with 
with a golden ticket to this Super Grand Prix in Prague, which is a great concept. It works really well. It's one of my favorite classes to watch. So you've got a real who's who of show jumping coming to the class. You've got uh, everyone from the world number one, Peter Fredriksen, to you've got legendary John Whitaker, Olympic champion Ben Mayer, Daniel Deusser, Harry Smolders, you know, all the big names mm -hmm. line up for this. So it, you know it's going to be a good class, but um, it's run over two two rounds as well, which is very unusual because you don't actually have a jump off. Um, so there's lots of tactics coming into play and the fences are sort of one meter 65 high. I mean, it's wow. the biggest jumps you will find in the sport. So yeah, it's a great class to watch, but this year it uh, came down to, we had two double clears in the end and uh, Sergio Alvarez Moya got the other double clear and he's slightly slower he's got a lovely black horse called Alamo who's mm -hmm. a fantastic jumper but just not as quick and then you had Ben Mayer in penultimate draw I think he was one of the red hot favorites obviously with explosion uh, we were all cheering for him but it just wasn't to be he jumped clear all the way around to the third the second last fence and uh, it was a really uncharacteristic mistake and I think Ben sort of blamed himself for it he said it was a bit of rider error he just he was just a bit too far away from this massive flimsy vertical um, so he ended up with four faults this time, but um, Henrik came in, he was last drawn, he knew exactly what he had to do. He actually said afterwards, I was quite relieved that Explosion had that fence because he mm. just didn't, he didn't think he was going to beat Ben's time and, you know, Ben is naturally quick anyway so but uh, his horse I, like I think I said he's he has a real character and he had he got a bit spooked coming into the arena so he had to enter the arena backwards which uh, <laughs> caused a big <laughs> chuckle around the arena it was uh, it was quite funny and um, in the process he actually ended up getting his tongue above the bit so Henrik said for the first few jumps he just had no feeling whatsoever he was sort of guiding the horse round as best he could around this huge course which is not obviously not the ideal situation but he jumped uh, a super round. It was brilliant to watch. And uh, he was just a bit quicker than Sergio. So picked up the top prize and it was brilliant. I mean, he the money in these competitions is fantastic. He won 300,000 euro for, for that class. So wow. uh, yeah, not bad for a night's work. So I think uh, he was thrilled anyway. So yeah, um, it's just, it is one of my favorite classes to watch. And uh, yeah, we were a bit gutted for poor Ben, but uh, yeah, it was great to watch. Brilliant. And how did the other Brits fare in the class? Yeah, so Ben ended up, he was on the podium, so he was third. Um, so that was, I mean, it was still a great result. Scott Brash was in the competition as well with the lovely Hello Jefferson. Um, he actually had four faults in the first round, but then came back and jumped clear in round two. So he was fifth. Um, we had John Whitaker in there as well with Unique de Francoport, and uh, he actually had a couple down in round one, but then came back and jumped a brilliant clear. It was so good to see. Uh, only John can sort of come back from uh, a round like that. And he, he did have a couple of time faults and ended up ninth but like I was saying about the money he he earned 30,000 pounds for finishing ninth so you know wow. this just uh, <laughs> I can't have been too disappointed and the, we actually had four uh, British riders in the end we had um, a name some people might not be familiar with he's called Samuel Dehan who's actually uh, from Egypt and he only switched nationalities this year to fly the British flag and um, yeah it was great to have him in the in the competition too he actually he didn't have the best couple of rounds and ended up retiring but uh, a great achievement for him to qualify so um, yeah it was great great to watch.
And then on Sunday, it was the final of the Global Champions League Super Cup final. Can you tell us a bit about this one, please? Yeah, so the GCL, it's for um, teams that run throughout the season and it's um, it's a great sort of end of season finale. They have a tournament over the four days. So you've got the quarterfinals, the semifinals, and then the final on Sunday for the top six teams. And it's the sort of knockout tournament. So uh, you end up with the top six and it is, it's quite fun. It's... Um, You've got three riders in each team for the final in Prague. So it's very similar to the Olympic format where all all the scores are counting and, you know, it's a super high pressure. You have to do well for your team. Um, and there were some really high scores, some shock exits and things like that. But the winners were the London Knights, which is fantastic. We've got a sort of British element. Emily Moffat is the sort of owner and the, she's the under 25 rider for that squad. So um, she was joined by the twins, uh, Nicola and Olivier Philippart for the final on Sunday. And they actually ended up they were the only team to jump three clear rounds um, between them which is a phenomenal achievement they did really really well so I think they were very happy to win that again talking about the prize money 1.2 million euros for that win so uh, yeah (laughs) again that was uh, nice for them so uh, yeah it was a great little competition and I hear the show is quite a spectacle too. Um, <laughs> were you there, Jen? Did you get to experience the atmosphere? <laughs> it is actually one of my favourite shows. I absolutely love it. I think the traditionalists probably turn their nose up a bit. It's all about the pyrotechnics. You've got the music, the lights, the smoke machines, everything. And um, I mean, it takes the sport to a whole new level. And I absolutely love it and embrace it and sort of get sucked into the whole uh, (laughs) theatrics of it all. Um, And it's held in the O2 Arena in the middle of Prague, which um, it's a a fantastic venue. It's a sort of natural amphitheatre and it it really lends itself to a big theatre. So it's really slick. They think of everything. There's, you know, the smoke machines come up in the colours of each rider as they're announced into the arena. They have fantastic music to accompany it. They've got mascots coming out firing t-shirts into <laughs> the crowds and things. And and Ben Mayer said afterwards, you know, you know, you love it or you hate it, but it actually it's it's really appealing for non-horsey people and makes it accessible. And it, I think it probably is the more the future of the sport. So mm-hmm. there's a lot to enjoy. And they're really good. The, all the prize givings and stuff they bring, I mean that in itself is a sort of stage show. Um, they bring the grooms out, they bring the the horses out and everyone gets trophies and recognition and stuff so they they do literally think of every, everything and it's a fantastic city anyone i'd urge anyone who wants a christmas trip to prague to uh, put it in the calendar for next year it's a really fun show and yeah i'd highly recommend a visit brilliant sounds like one for the reporting bucket list (laughs) (laughs) yeah I have to say it's not such a hardship to go to that one (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much for joining us Jen it's great to get an update on that show thank you very much for having me And we're back for this week's news review. I'm joined by Horse and Hounds news editor, Eleanor Jones. Hello, Eleanor. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Absolutely freezing. Uh, layered up in all my layers. Horses <laughs> all rugged up. And I mean, the one bonus, I suppose, is there's actually I probably shouldn't say there's no mud yet because then by this time next week we'll have a swamp. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, winter's definitely arrived. I'm also joined by our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. How are you doing, Lucy? 
I'm very well, thank you, Alex. I've had quite an exciting week this week, actually. I um, I went up to Burley to have a chat to the new course designer, Derek DeGrazia, and Martin Johnson, who's the new director. So yes, that's been exciting. And then I went out reporting at the weekend and covered the Melton Hunt Club ride, which is, yeah, that is quite a thrill. So it's been, yeah, great week, really. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. I've had a pretty busy week too, um, but my pony's actually just been enjoying some winter turnout at the minute and I'm kind of tentatively thinking about bringing him back into work. But as you said, Eleanor, it's so cold outside, so I'm definitely putting that off for the for the moment. But yeah, we'll get there soon. <laughs> so Eleanor, we'll come to you first. You've been working on a story about the closure of a 40-year-old riding school, Green Acres Equestrian in Hertfordshire. Uh, so why has the riding school been forced to close, Eleanor? Can you just tell us a bit about what's been going on? Yeah, I mean, they, they've been running for, for 40 years and, and they've said it has just got to the point where it's a combination of loads of things, health and safety regulations, the requirements for licensing, paperwork, bureaucracy and just the costs of everything mm-hmm. has just meant it's it's not viable anymore, which is really sad. And what does this mean for the industry? Well, it, it's something that really concerns me and I'm, I always am desperate to bang the drum for riding schools because we all know just such how much of a tough, tough job it is and but also how vital they are because without riding schools, we, we haven't got an industry. I learned at a riding school and I'm, I'm far, far from being the only one. And, you know, one of the things Penny was uh, Penny Cornish, the owner of Greenacres, was talking to me about was apart from the fact that riders like um, Philip Miller has been at Greenacres since he was seven, Ben Walker, who uh, came second in the Hoys Grand Prix this year, has been he's a product of riding schools. And also the just the generations of people who have been helped by horses who have found their way into, into the industry. Mm-hmm. They've had such a tough as everyone has, but they've had such a tough couple of years with, you know, having to to keep the ponies and horses cared for with no income and it it just really worries me and Penny said herself she hopes this sparks the debate on how can we make the riding schools more viable because they're so crucial. Mm -hmm. And what did the government have to say in response? Not a huge amount. <laughs> um, we uh, there had been, a, and I had asked them without a huge amount of hope whether there was any chance of, of any government subsidising of riding schools, as does happen in in some European countries, and and could be doable. You know, on the on the benefits of to physical and mental health that comes with uh, riding and working with horses, and and I was told the government absolutely recognises the importance of sport and physical activity, and then the spokesman just said that uh, talked about all the grants riding schools had been eligible for from the pandemic. Thank you for that, Eleanor. Lucy, we're coming to you next to discuss some news regarding the 2024 Paris Olympics and Paralympics. Can you tell us what's happened? Yes, I can. There's been a couple of sort of major developments this week, which I think it was well to be aware of, um, that came out of the FEI's uh, annual General Assembly. Uh, so I'll start with the, uh, the positive news and then I'll move on to the slightly more contentious side that I've been focusing on this week so uh, the really exciting news is that everything's full steam ahead for Paris Uh, we got quite an exciting update from the FEI's games director Tim Hadaway 
we already knew that the equestrian venue was going to be at Versailles, which is spectacular. Um, but he gave us some really nice, exciting nuggets. Um, and I always love this the sort of build up to the next games as you're starting to get a picture of how it's all going to look and what's mm -hmm. happening. So uh, the temporary arena is going to be at the end of the Grand Canal, which has got that magnificent view up to the palace itself. Uh, the cross country is going to run through sort of beautiful tree lined avenues of the park and potentially cross the Grand Canal. There was a, some few more details about the sort of back of house facilities where the grooms are going to stay, timetabling and things, as well as news that the cross country course designer is expected to be appointed sort of this side of Christmas. So mm -hmm. that's all really exciting. And then sort of moving on to the slightly more contentious side of things, uh, we learnt this week that teams of three will go ahead again at these games um, so that followed a vote by the national federations um the exact sort of format and minimum eligibility requirements and things that's all yet to be decided mm -hmm. but what this does is it means that that all builds up to having yeah teams of teams of three at the olympics and paralympics and also to clear up any confusion this isn't riders voting on this this is a national federation vote and this one really did split opinion so talking specifically about the olympics as uh, there was a separate vote for the paralympics 70 national federations voted yes in favor of teams of three while 30 voted no which would be a vote for teams of four and there was one abstention and then again looking at the paralympic games um that passed again 79 in favor and 19 19 against so yeah it's split opinion mm. and what's been some of the reaction well Quite often when we're talking about this and we're looking at Olympic formats and things, the question comes up, why? I mean, you know, completely valid question. Why Why is all this tinkering? Why, why are we doing this? And to boil that down, probably to oversimplify that a bit, it's because no sports place in the Olympics is guaranteed. Mm. And um, the International Olympic Committee have, have their vision, their agenda and things, and sports have to have to align with those to a certain degree and so one of those aims is for for more flags more nations at the games you know easier to understand format and one that works for tv and so again boiling that down very very simplistically that kind of goes in hand in hand with limited time and space which is how we got to teams of three at tokyo in the first place mm -hmm. there were discussions about this earlier in the week that weren't live streamed um but the international jumping riders club shared a video of steve gerda speaking on behalf of the club which by, you know, by its name, it represents riders about the issues surrounding those teams of three. And he suggested that perhaps a better way to grow the sport globally would be increase the number of individual sports that are games while having fewer teams. So, mm. you know, those nations that perhaps don't have three or four or multiple riders at that level, they might have one and, you know, that will give them that boost and sort of lead lead growth that way without compromising on, on the level of sport that we're seeing in the pictures some of the pictures we saw uh, at the games this time mm. and kind of for me in my my personal opinion I mean the vote the National Federation vote was it was a secret vote I'm not sure how I personally feel about that but um, when transparency is so important for the sport I wonder why it is a secret vote if, if you get my gist there there's quite possibly a whole whole reason why it's crucial that it does remain secret but you know I did appreciate British Equestrian coming back to me so quickly to explain which way they voted and they were more than happy to tell me um, they voted no so their vote was um, in favour of teams of four so they voted against teams of three yeah for what they see for the good of the sport so yeah 
Brilliant. Thank you so much for that, Lucy. And thanks again, Eleanor, for joining us today for the news review. So now we're going over to Jason Webb, a trainer who specialises in starting young horses and retraining those with problems. Born in Australia, Jason is now based in Kent in England and his online training service at yourhorsemanship.com means owners around the world can learn and benefit from his techniques. Over to you, Jason. In this episode, I'm going to talk about lunging and I'm going to talk about lunging more in the context of a, of a young horse that's, that's being started. In this context, lunging is fundamental for me to teach forward. So that's the main use of lunging. When I'm doing this in the beginning, if I've got my horse bitted, which you may have heard in a previous episode, I would put a bridle on and lunge my horse in the bridle just to get them used to moving forward with that piece of equipment on and making sure they're really relaxed with it. Now, there's two basic things to lunging. If you complicate things too much at this early stage, it can cause a lot of blockages or resistances in your horse. The two things to really consider when you're lunging is that the back half of your horse is to drive forward. The front half of your horse will stop your horse. Now, the reason I'm making a point of this is a lot of problems with lunging come from the person that's lunging's position. So they want to lunge their horse forward and the horse doesn't know how to go forward. This is what you have to remember with these babies. Um, they're looking for a way, a, a way out or an open door. And if you're trying to lunge and you're sort of slightly standing in front of them, you can get a horse that sort of might run away from you or turn and face you, um, all of which stop forward motion. So the biggest thing to remember at this stage is drive the hip. Stay behind your horse's shoulders or even um, behind the rib cage and push your horse forward. This might initially start with some just a couple of steps. So with a horse that really has never been asked to lunge before, I'll get into this position. I'll offer a hand forward. So if I start off on a small circle, so I can control them a little bit better. So I have a 12 foot line that I use initially. And I just have a little bit of a, an, an indicator or a forward cue with my rein hand. And then I'll be in behind, just pushing them in the direction that I'm indicating. And I'm just looking for a forward step in the beginning. So it doesn't have to be a circle. A lot of people can make the mistake of saying, right, I'd, I'd like you to lunge. And when the horse attempts to go forward, they say, brilliant, I've got some forward. Now let's keep that going. However, in a horse's mind, they're not sure what they're supposed to be doing. And it seems like the right thing to do to step forward because we've allowed space for that to happen. And now how do they know they've done the right thing? They know because once they've stepped forward, I've stopped driving. So I've stopped asking my horse to go forward and my horse very quickly associates drive with stepping forward. Now you, you might be asking, what, what do you mean when you say drive? So drive is, is the use of energy 
let's put it that way. Sometimes it can be, um, you can use just your body. So if you vibrate or move an arm is enough for some horses to be motivated to move. Other horses might need a lunge whip and just the, the sound or the movement of a lunge whip or a rope for that instance. Um, so you might swing a rope round. Might be enough to drive your horse or motivate your horse to drive forward. Um, otherwise, you might have to bump them. And so that would be just a tap on the on the backside to ask for, for that drive or that movement forward. And very quickly, your horse will start to associate drive and that indicator with your hand to step forward. Once this is initiated, we just repeat this process until we do a, a, a circle shape. Um, a lot of the time, I use the word when I'm teaching swirkle. So it's definitely not a circle. It's a swervy sort of circle around. But this is all we're after in the beginning. Now, lunging comes with a big caveat, which potentially I should have mentioned at the start. Horses do kick. And particularly when you're um, asking them to move forward. A lot of the flighty horses will tend to want to move away. But there are other horses that are that are maybe a little more stubborn and might be inclined to want to um, challenge you, i.e. kick out or something like that. So it's really important that, that you understand how your horse can move and be really aware of that in terms of their kicking distance and be aware of where you are within that. So a really important thing about controlling a horse that might kick uh, when you're lunging is control of the head. So if, if I have a horse that I think may well kick, then I will have a slight bend towards me at all times. Now the reason for this is if your horse does try to kick, if their head is bent towards you, it puts their body in such a shape that any sort of use of their hind end tends to want to move away from you. So an exaggerated version of bringing their, their head to you would be to disengage your horse or if the head comes towards you the hip moves away it's just the law of physics and and the shape of the horse's body that that sort of compels your horse to do that but it's really important in maintaining safety when you're when you're lunging your horse so really bear that in mind so once we've got a few steps then we can start to string a few steps together so we might think of lunging as in quarters or sometimes even eights so i might sort of say all right let's go forward for for a quarter and once they've done a quarter i'll just leave them for a second now a horse has a choice when you leave them they can either keep cruising forward or they can stop and look at you or they have a choice and, and if i want to try and complete a full circle I'll go for it. I'll ask him to go forward for another quarter. And I'll just re keep repeating this until my horse uses anticipation to continue forward. So my horse is going to start to think if I keep doing this, once I've done one quarter, I know what he's going to ask me to, me to do next. He's going to ask me to, to go for another quarter. 
and the horse will suddenly start to do it themselves and that is where we've started our lunge circle and it's a really important process in terms of teaching your horse to start carrying themselves forward i see a lot of people when they're lunging can get caught in the trap of nagging and this comes from from sort of asking for every step instead of asking and allowing your horse to make the decision if they make the wrong decision then ask again the same can be said of riding as well nagging when you're riding so think of think of that in terms of um, generating forward movement so once i'm starting to get my horse moving forward then we start to put we start to get our horse to um, go up and down through the gears so walk and trot i will spend a lot of time with that until i've got a, a nice balanced circle um, before i ask for maybe a couple of strides of canter and this could be you know a, a week or two weeks into the training before i ask for a, a canter in an open space on the on the lunge because I, I really want my horse to understand what i'm asking so that when i put energy in my horse thinks well that's more energy means more forward not i need to get worried and get away from you now there's something else about balance on a lunge and i'm going to finish on this subject a lot of people think a horse my horse can't lunge or, or or for whatever reason because they're not physically strong enough and there is a degree of that but i tend to i tend to think every horse can walk trot and canter on a on a 20 meter circle and all the years i've i've um, been starting horses when a horse's mind is centered um, then the body tends to travel around nicely one of the things that stops a horse from being balanced on the lunge or on a circle is is there what they're mentally thinking about so imagine your horse you're on a lunge and they keep hanging towards the gate so you're never going to get a balanced circle while their mind is thinking about moving to the gate because when their mind thinks about it that's where their body goes and so you get an imbalance both towards the gate and on the other side of the circle they drop in into you so you've got this sort of oval shape or, or on one side it's oval the other side it's really squashed so how do we fix this how do we create more balance the answer is is to ask for a little more forward by the gate and relax when they're away from the gate so when your horse comes by the gate you'll push a little more which might create a little bit of resistance in terms of they'll be falling towards the gate which is fine you just go just keep pushing as i go towards the gate and then there'll be a step where they go this is going sideways it's quite difficult towards the gate i'm just going to step forward and at that point i'll relax and they can come back to a walk as they go around the top of the circle as they come back by the gate again i might ask them to push on again and this has the effect of the horse thinking well by the gate i have to push forward a little more which is a bit more work away from the gate it feels easier so i think i'd prefer to stay a little bit further away from the gate because it feels easier up there and in doing that my horse starts to balance up in their circle so it's not just about 
how much you're pushing. It's also where you're pushing or driving. Um, these things need to be considered when you're teaching your horse to lunge or, or teaching your horse forward in the initial stages. Obviously, what you do to one side, you must do to the other. So I hope that's been helpful. Give it a try. Thank you, Jason. Next week, Jason will talk about tacking up a young horse. And our guest will be the International Grand Prix Dressage Rider, Lara Butler. Make sure you stay tuned to Horse and Hound's Facebook, Twitter and Instagram channels next Wednesday night as we reveal the winners of this year's Horse and Hound Awards in partnership with NAF. And we'll be back with the podcast at the end of next week as normal. Talk to you then. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.